Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Just in time for St. Patty's Day, listen to my talk with Jamie Eves of the Wyndham Textile and History Museum in Willimantic about their new exhibition, Irish Eyes, the Irish Experience in a Connecticut Mill Town. Plus, in their quarterly installment of What's It All About?, the Connecticut Explored editorial team talks about the new spring 2016 issue. And Elizabeth Norman talks with Melody Anderson Bourbeau, curator of Hillstead Museum in Farmington, about the suffrage journey of Hillstead's architect and last resident, Theodate Pope Riddle. It's Connecticut history worth listening to and talking about on Episode 6 of Grading the Nutmeg. All you young men I pray draw near now And give ear to the words I'm going to say I'm going to tell you that the people of Ireland are emigrating to America Well today we're at the Mill Museum in Willimantic, Connecticut That's east of the river And I'm happy to be talking with Jamie Eves Who is an instructor at Eastern Connecticut State University And the executive director of the Mill Museum Jamie, good to see you Thanks for having me, Walt Jamie and I, by the way, went to graduate school together More years ago than either of us want to count So (laughs) this is kind of a class reunion for us It is, yes (laughs) Uh, So tell us about the museum We're here because you have a wonderful new exhibit called Irish Eyes. But tell us about the museum itself. This is a wonderful setting. Well, the museum was founded uh, 27 years ago, uh, and it was founded when Willimantic's signature corporation, the American Thread Company, closed down operations, abandoned its multi-building plant, and relocated to the U.S. South. Uh, The company actually no longer really exists as an independent corporation and isn't really anywhere anymore. Uh, But that was sort of a gut punch to uh, to the community of Willimantic. Uh, And so the people who lived here uh, wanted to make sure that the experiences uh, of theirs and of their parents and grandparents and the other people who came and worked here and built the mills, they wanted to make sure those folks weren't forgotten. Uh, They also were looking for some sort of a new kind of economic endeavor. So they organized this museum. We're located in two former buildings from the uh, American Thread Complex, the former company store and a former warehouse. And this building, the one that we're in now, yep. is the company store, and it was it was, a, yep. was a kind of education center as well. And right? it was that, too. It's a three-story building. So the first two floors were the company store. We're on the first floor where we're talking here, and this is where they sold groceries. Uh, upstairs on the second floor was dry goods. The third floor was a library uh, that was available for mill workers and their families and actually anybody else in town. There was no public library in 1877 when this was built, and so it functioned uh, as a public library even after a real public library was, was built in the 1890s. The library remained a library until about 1940. The company store didn't last as long. The era of company stores was disappearing rapidly by the end of the Gilded Age. In uh, 1896, they converted this to office space. 
we are in the ground floor, and this is a scene of this really exciting new exhibit. The title is Irish Eyes, uh, the Irish Experience in a Connecticut Milltown. And even though the exhibit focuses on uh, Willimantic and the migration of Irish to Willimantic and the experiences of Irish Americans here in Willimantic, the story we want to tell is a more universal story. Uh, immigrants came to all kinds of mill towns in Connecticut, and the experiences they had were very similar. And the Irish were one of the major groups that, that came, along with French Canadians and Poles and Germans and Italians and all sorts of other people uh, to the various communities that were around here. And people of Irish descent are still one of the largest ethnic groups they in are. Connecticut. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of people from all over the state who would love this exhibit. Well, I would hope so. And I hope that they will come to see it and will you know, learn a little bit about uh, what their ancestors might have experienced when they uh, were leaving home uh, and coming to a new and a strange place and trying to fit in and trying to uh, adapt there. But I, I think you don't even have to be of Irish descent. Uh, because the experiences of the Irish mirrored those of other ethnic groups uh, who came as immigrants uh, to Connecticut. Uh, and so you know, there are real similarities among all of the groups. So in a way, this is an Irish story and an immigrant story. It, both. it is, and it's, it's meant to be. It's actually the third in a series of uh, ethnic exhibits that we've done here at the Mill Museum. Uh, we're building these exhibits around the help from people in the community. So Willimantic, as part of its rich ethnic heritage, has a number of ethnic clubs. These clubs are experiencing declining membership as time goes by. That's a national trend. Uh, and a lot of them are anxious to tell their stories now while they still have the ability to do that. So the Willimantic Irish Club uh, played a huge role in putting this together. They helped fund it. Uh, one of their members, uh, Anne-Marie uh, Feeney-Charland, uh, is the uh, curator, the volunteer curator of the exhibit, and she just did a fantastic job putting it together. Um, uh, and members of the local Irish-American community were very generous in loaning artifacts uh, so that we really can tell a full story here. Well, you do absolutely get a full overview of the Irish experience as, as emigrants settled into America. It's a great story. So tell us the kinds of things they can expect to see when they come here. Well, the exhibit is sort of in the form of a story. It's not just, you know, artifacts in glass cases, although we have those. Uh, and so as, as you enter the exhibit room where the, uh, the exhibit is located, uh, you'll first encounter uh, a reproduction of an Irish thatch cottage uh, and learn how they thatched cottages uh, in Ireland. Then what happens is the exhibit uh, talks about uh, the migration itself. Uh, how there were a few Irish that came to Connecticut during the colonial period, not very many, and most of them were Protestants, but there were some. Uh, but then, starting with the famine in the 1840s, uh, a massive migration that's now a family migration. It's not the individuals who came before, but these are whole families that uh, arrived in very, very large numbers, you know, fleeing the famine, so it's in part an economic migration, but also fleeing the oppression of British rule in Ireland. So it's a political migration uh, as well. So it's a highly politicized group of people uh, that arrive. 
And although the migration slows down a bit when the famine is over in the mid-1850s, uh, it, it never abates. It continues uh, into, the, into the present. Uh, Anne-Marie uh, Feeney-Charland, who is the person who is uh, the curator of the exhibit, her grandparents on both sides were born in Ireland uh, and came here in the 1920s. Uh, so it's an ongoing migration. You know, Connecticut's first Irish governor, John Dempsey, also emigrated here with his parents. He came to Putnam, and his father and mother worked, of course, in a mill town. So this is, as you said, a story that repeats. And one of the things that I really love about this exhibit is that while you've got this larger story of the Irish experience, it is punctuated all the way through with these wonderful artifacts from the area and from people who were lived here. And that was a surprise to me when uh, we began to work on it. I had not realized the migration had continued over such a long period of time. When we first started to put this together, I was expecting this to be about the famine, and I thought, well, what artifacts are going to have lasted since then? But the reverse has been true. We have uh, photographs of uh, the volunteer fire department. There were several volunteer fire departments in, in Gilded Age, uh, Willimannick, and one of them was Irish, uh, the Montgomery Hose House. Uh, named after General Richard Montgomery from the American Revolution, an Irish-American hero. Uh, and not only do we have photographs, we actually have uh, uh, a cornerstone uh, from, from the building. The building no longer exists, but the stone was saved and it's kept, um, and it's here. We've got uh, military uniforms from people right up to the present who have served uh, in the military. We've got artifacts about Irish and Irish-Americans in Willimannock who played baseball. And one of the stories we, we want to tell is after the Irish got here, how did they become upwardly mobile? How did they move up uh, in a new place where they weren't always welcome and where there was a great deal of uh, nativist opposition uh, to their, their, their being here? I notice you even reproduced some of the No Irish Need Apply advertisements. Well, we did, cartoons from newspapers and things like that. It, it turns out there weren't a lot of signs in storefronts and windows, uh, and there's been historians who have actually written about that, that, that that actually was not as common as we maybe think today. But, boy, there was an awful lot of negative nativist stuff. Thomas Nass cartoons where he depicted the Irish as being ape-like, and he depicted other groups as well, other ethnic groups as the same way, that he didn't, he didn't like them either. Uh, the Irish were viewed as having an alien religion, Roman Catholicism, that you know was in a majority Protestant state at the time. Uh, they were viewed as being culturally different. And because they were highly politicized, there was a fear that they might all be terrorists, having you know, engaged in you know, anti-English uh, anti activities. And indeed, Anne-Marie, in investigating her family, found out that her grandparents were indeed members of the Irish Republican Army uh, when they migrated here. That was scary to a lot of people in Connecticut. You're probably too young to remember this, but I remember as a boy yeah. when John F. Kennedy was running for yeah. president, there was a big background concern about his Catholicism and whether he would serve the Pope more than the people. Yeah, although I don't remember that personally. I, I was five. Um, you Thanks, know, I Jamie. certainly have read about that. Yeah, this is this is something that went on for a long time. Uh, Connecticut was one of the centers of the so-called Know Nothing Party in the 1850s. You and I were chatting about that earlier. Its official name was the American Party. And the Know Nothing Party actually was the majority
majority party in Connecticut for a few years in the middle of the, the 1850s. They took over state government, and the centerpiece of the party was anti-Catholic uh, nativism, anti-immigrant activity, wanting to keep, uh, wanting to keep Catholics out. Uh, and in this way, history has repeated itself as uh, people who are not of majority religions or majority cultures. And the Irish, too, were one of the first groups to come to New England that didn't all speak English. Many of them spoke Irish Gaelic instead. And there has been suspicion, uh, you know, right down to the present, e even with the, the fear that there might be a connection to terrorism. So there are lots of lessons that we can learn uh, and apply to, to other groups as well. Uh, you know, Irish are so naturalized now. People are yep. proud of their Irishness. Yeah. And there was a time, I think, when, well, I guess people were always proud of it, but it wasn't always as well received. Part two is, you know, the upward mobility and the eventual assimilation, which has happened with all immigrant groups who have been here long enough. And uh, it, it, it's slowed sometimes when, uh, you know, there are uh, ethnic churches, which the Irish had. They had their own Catholic church, uh, St. Joseph Church, and their own school. They had parochial schools. But the, the assimilation occurred, and it occurred as the Irish were rapidly mobile. As they were able to move up in society, they had more of a stake in society. So we tried to trace that in the exhibit. And, we, you know, we start with Civil War soldiers, and the Irish... Uh, from Connecticut, served in the Civil War, volunteered, uh, you know, uh, to, to fight in the war for the Union, uh, and, and were part of that. Uh, and, you know, then they go into small business, barber shops. So today it's the Latinos in Willimantic who own most of the barber shops. But once it was the Irish. Oh, I guess owning a barber shop is a way to move up in the world. And for the Irish, it was often uh, fire departments, police departments, uh, and politics for men. That was the route to upward mobility. When we looked at Irish-American women, the route to upward mobility turned out to be education, finishing high school, and then going on to the Willimantic Normal School, what's now Eastern Connecticut State University, and becoming teachers. Indeed, one of the interesting things that, that made politics such an avenue to legitimacy and power for incoming Irish is that the naturalization laws were much easier in the 1850s, and people could vote shortly after they arrived. Yeah, there's really no such thing as an illegal immigrant until the 1920s. The, the, really, the only thing that would prevent you from being able to come to the United States is if you had a dread communicable disease and less than 2% of the people who arrived in Ellis Island were ever sent back. So, you know, it's, it's an overwhelming, it's an open door basically sure. up until the 1920s. And so that helped uh, the Irish and the French Canadians and the Poles and the other members of the so-called new immigrants who you know came during the 19th and early 20th century. So, you know, I've got my favorite artifacts from the exhibit. What are your favorite artifacts from this? Uh, well, it, actually, a, a couple of things that you, people can actually touch and play with. So there is an Irish drum. It, it's actually, it's not, uh, it's not an antique. It's here to be played with. So you can come and you can, you know, hit the thing with a stick. Uh, so there's some instruments that you, you can play. There's also a game that our educator, Bev York, uh, came up with uh, where you actually, you, 
you get on a ship on a board and then you roll a die and I guess you spin a, a, a spinner uh, and based on the number things can happen as you cross the Atlantic and if you play the game what you'll discover is the most common thing that will happen to you is that you won't make it uh, you die in port from a disease waiting for the ship to sail you die on the ship from a disease you die in quarantine when you get here gosh that sounds like fun yeah well we stole the idea from the National Museum of Canada in Ottawa, who had it as a big Wheel of Fortune type board that they were using, uh, and uh, and, and that, that was the the most common thing is that it, it tells you how dangerous it was. This just sounds like a great experience for people. Now, I would think when they come to see the exhibit on the Irish they'll also get to see the larger mill experience, right? Will you take them on tours of the... Well, yes. I mean, it's you come and you see the whole museum. It's an entry fee to the museum. So one of our exhibit rooms is the one on the Irish experience uh, here in Willimantic. Uh But we also have uh, a... Uh, 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 an exhibit that shows the machinery that used to exist. You can see how dangerous the machinery was. Uh, and if there's a docent on duty, we'll even turn one or two of them on for you so you can hear how noisy those things were. We also have representations of uh, mill worker um, housing uh, as well. So there are a number of things that, that people can see. It's terrific. Well, I was excited to come see this exhibit. I think People from all over the state will really like what they see, and we want to encourage them to come and uh, visit the Mill Museum and spend a day in Willimantic. There's so much to do that's fun here. There are indeed. So see the frogs and the, the big frog the bridge. Frog that's bridge. Right. You have to see the frog bridge. Uh, and now don't tell the story. Let I, I, I won't. Uh, I just you just have say, to ask a local to find out what the frog bridge is yes, about. Yes, it's a great story. I, but I also want to say Willimantic is well known for award-winning restaurants uh, that have won national awards. And you know, we're really happy to direct people to where they could uh, get a very nice meal. Sure. There's uh, Cafe Mantic. Which Cafe is Mantic. Hartford, yep. I think it's a Hartford Advocate's best of something year after yeah. year. Yeah, after it year. is. They have farm-to-table food there. Very, very good food. There's the Willimantic Brewery. Oh, uh, Willie Brew, yeah. Uh, which, you know, has uh, national awards for the beers that they, they make. There's a terrific Irish pub that is just really good. Closed on Sundays, but any other day that you'd come here, it would be available as well. And a number of other really nice places. And the Irish pub? I mean, if you're coming to see an Irish exhibit you got to go to the pub. yeah so uh the museum is open on fridays saturdays and sundays from 10 to 4 so if you're here on a friday or a saturday and uh ask us for directions we'll be glad to give them and what's it called uh harp on church jamie thank you so much for this overview of what i think is an absolutely terrific exhibit you're welcome Walt. thanks for coming all you young men i pray draw near now and give ear to the words I'm going to say I'm going to tell you that the people of Ireland are emigrating to America
I'm Jennifer LaRue, the editor of Connecticut Explored. I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Norman, our publisher, Mary Donahue, our assistant publisher, and Dave Corrigan, one of our very frequent and beloved contributors and a member of our editorial team. We are going to be talking about civic engagement in this issue, and I'm going to hand the mic over just in a moment to Elizabeth Norman, who's going to talk about why, why civic engagement is a theme for an issue at this moment, and then a little bit more uh, about things she learned about voting rights in the state. Thanks, Jennifer. Back in the fall, when we started talking about, well, what should we do next year, 2016, it seemed natural, of course, to think about the presidential election year and do an issue on voting rights and civic engagement. And certainly the uh, election season is hot and heavy on everybody's mind, all wondering who will we be voting for next fall. Connecticut's primaries are coming up April 26th, and we certainly hope that all of uh, the grading, not Meg, Listeners will be voting on April 26th. One message this year is that voting, you got to vote twice. You know, voting in a primary is so just so very important, as well as voting in the uh, actual election in November. And I came to appreciate that really by looking at some of the stories that we have in this issue about women's suffrage, about women's right to vote, and then an essay that we've adapted from our book, African American Connecticut Explored, that came out in 2014 about African Americans' uh, fight for the vote in Connecticut. And the thread of both of those stories is that neither women nor African Americans won the right to vote in Connecticut without a federal amendment. And so in this day when states' rights versus, you know, the purview of the federal government is very much on our minds, I just note that, uh, that we owe our right to vote to federal amendments. There is evidence that African Americans could vote in Connecticut in the colonial period, probably at the very local level, town level. But in 1814, a state statute defined or limited voting to white males, and that was also codified in the new Constitution of 1818. And despite repeated efforts by African Americans to petition the General Assembly for the right to vote, they were unsuccessful. Those appeals fell on deaf ears, even though they, they used the same rhetoric used in the American Revolution, the rhetoric of taxation without representation, fell on deaf ears until the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. So uh, not only uh, women and blacks, but also uh, people of varying uh, religious faiths have faced struggles in finding parity uh, of religious freedom here in Connecticut. Uh, and Mary, you've written a very interesting article about the Jewish experience. Our sightlines department in the magazine really shows history through the lens of historic places and historic buildings. And so starting with the celebration of the 175th anniversary in 2015 of Congregation Michigan-Israel in New Haven, I wanted to be sure that we recognize the fact that it wasn't until 1843 that Jews were actually given religious equality here in Connecticut. And I know when I first heard that date, 1843, I thought, why so late? How can that possibly be true? Because certainly by the 1840s, Connecticut's Jewish community had established themselves in the retail and business life of both Hartford and New Haven, but were unable to purchase property and hold that property as a religious society. They felt that uh, they were not covered in the Constitution of 1818, which actually had a floor debate that covered what religious freedoms were going to be extended to other religious organizations besides Congregationalists as they disestablished the Congregationalist Church. 
So they included Episcopalians and Baptists and Methodists. They all formed a new political party, the Toleration Party, in 1816, and made sure that the new constitution in Connecticut of 1818 severed the tie between state and church and allowed for these other religious societies to be formed. But the the legislature at that time, in voting on the constitution, decided to insert the word Christian before societies. They actually debated on the floor whether they would exclude Jews. They deliberately did exclude Jewish religious congregations. So in early 1840s, when the members of Congregation Michigan Israel wanted to buy land to have a cemetery, they felt that they were on uneven ground, that they really didn't have the proper enabling statute at the state level that would recognize them as a religious society and allow them to own property. So two members actually filed a formal petition with the state legislature, and I went to the state library in the archives, had boxes brought up, looked through all the petitions from May of 1843 until I found the one that was filed asking for religious equality. They state in the petition that the state constitution has made ample provision for all to worship God, but the law is not broad enough to protect us in the ownership of property and burial grounds, as in the case with Christian denominations. And they say, ask for an amendment to the state constitution to grant Jews the same religious rights and privileges now enjoyed by Christians of all denominations. It went uh, as a little folded up petition, handwritten petition, to the clerk. It was forwarded to the Judicial Committee, and it was rejected as a state amendment to the Constitution. Now, as you know, anytime you're going to try to amend the state Constitution, it's a big deal. Instead, they recommended that just a simple law be changed. So the law then just read that Jews may, who may desire to unite and form religious societies shall have the same rights, powers, and privileges that are given to Christians of every denomination. And with that, Congregation Michigan Israel felt confident enough to purchase land to form a cemetery, which is in the Westville part of New Haven and is still in use today. Wow, that is quite a story. I think people are going to be a little surprised to hear about all of that. Thank you so much, Mary. So some people may be surprised to hear that Connecticut has not always had an income tax. And Dave Corrigan wrote a really fascinating photo essay for us about uh, the 1991 anti-income tax rally and uh, his office's involvement in that. Governor Lowell Weicker, who has, was famously known for saying that passing a, an income tax in the middle of a recession was like pouring gasoline on a fire, uh, came to the conclusion after studying the budget numbers for the upcoming year that the only sensible way out of the budget deficit situation was to have an income tax passed. The legislature failed to pass one during the regular session. They were called back into a special session. They passed three budgets without an income tax, and the governor vetoed all three. Finally, in the early hours of on the morning of August 22nd of 1991, they passed a budget with this, an income tax of 6%, which the governor signed. This led almost immediately to the planning of a major anti-income tax rally, which was held on the 5th of October 1991 on the grounds of the state capitol. Income tax opposition had been growing for many months. State Senator 
Tom Scott of Milford had formed the Connecticut Taxpayers Committee in December of 1990, and there was statewide uh, opposition to it. They had a, uh, a word-of-mouth campaign. There was a lot of information being disseminated on talk radio, and a lot of people around the state were not- no- noticeably upset about the, the possibility of an income tax. So when it was finally passed, the rally occurred on the 5th of October, and depending on who you listen to, the official estimates by the state police was 40,000 people, and the rally organizers claimed they had 70,000 on the grounds of the Capitol protesting the tax. In any event, it's it still remains one of the largest public demonstrations of uh, sentiment for or against a you know a, a piece of legislation that was that was enacted by the legislature. The day of the anti-income tax rally was a bright sunny day. Busloads of people came in from across the state. I know of several people who say they rode their bicycles into Hartford from Wethersfield, and not everyone, but a lot of the people had homemade signs and placards that they carried during the rally just to uh, you know ex- express their sentiment against the income tax. And Governor Weicker uh, himself appeared on the grounds of the Capitol during the rally, and he was talking with some of the protesters and was finally escorted off by his state police detail before, well, they, they were getting worried that there was going to be some violence against the governor. But he later described the rally as just, you know, average Connecticut citizens expressing their, their right to, to dissent. You had suggested, and we thought it was a great idea, that you um, do a photo essay featuring some of these placards. So can you tell us, first of all, how you came to possess those? And then can you give, give us some examples of what people had to say on these signs? Sure. I, I did not attend the rally. The day after, however, uh, Sunday, I decided to drive in and... Uh, retrieve some of the placards that I had seen. I'd watched some of it on TV, and I knew what was there. And I decided that since the Museum of Connecticut History specializes and focuses on military, industrial, and political history, that we should have some of these placards in the collection. So that Sunday morning, my my daughter, who was then five, decided that she wanted to come with Dad to go on this little adventure. I was surprised to find that there were not placards and signs and stuff strewn everywhere. The placards were mostly piled on two of the large flower beds, one on the west side and one on the east side of the Capitol. Hmm. So it was fairly easy to kind of just sort through and pull out. You know, we, we ended up with about 50 placards, and I put them in the trunk of my car. And as we were getting ready to go, my daughter looked up in one of the, in one of the trees out in front of the Capitol, and she said, Dad, what's, what's that? And I looked up, and here's an effigy of Lowell Weicker hanging by a noose from a limb of the tree. And it was composed of a, a, a pumpkin with a effigy face in magic marker and a pair of glasses with a white shirt and a tie stuffed with straw and a pair of pants also stuffed with straw. And I decided, well, we're going to have to get that for the collection. So we took the placards home and I brought them back into work on Monday morning. And the assistant curator at the time was Debbie Barone, and I told her what we had seen in the tree. So we grabbed a ladder from the plant facilities department, walked across Capitol Avenue 9 o'clock on Monday morning and put the ladder up against the tree. And I was about halfway up when the state capitol police came over and said, what do you think you're doing? You know, I, So we explained who we were, why we were there. And one of the officers actually held the ladder for me while I went up and sawed this limb off with the effigy of Weicker on it. So we brought that back across the street and 
we had to get rid of the pumpkin, of course, but mm. we have everything else, the clothing and the, the noose and the limb of the tree that it was, was hanging on. Can you tell us what some of these signs said? The major theme was axe the tax. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of representations of axes, and there's one that shows Lowell with an axe sticking out of the top of his head that says axe the tax, uh, repeal the tax. Um, several of them have expressed sentiments that are not fit for a family podcast, podcast <laughs> <laughs> or a family magazine. But they, I think they were in the minority. Uh, repeal the tax, impeach Weicker, turncoat, um, dump Weicker. Those are the, the major sentiments. Some of them kind of wax poetical. And we have one that says, there is a man, Lowell, income tax's biggest goal. He is a leech we must impeach in order to regain control. So there's a wide variety of, of uh, artwork and expressions in opposition to the, to the tax. But I think we were able to, to acquire you know, a good cross-section of the sentiment. Well, it's great that you had that forethought to go ahead and do that. And people who want to actually see images of these pictures, well, I guess they're just going to have to get themselves a hold of a copy of the spring issue of Connecticut Explored, right? Thank you, Dave, for that great story. One of many great stories in this civic engagement-themed issue of Connecticut Explored, our spring issue, and we hope everybody enjoys it. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. The spring 2016 issue has two great stories about women's suffrage, Jessica Jenkins' story on the fight for the vote and Christopher Griffin and Henry Cohn's story about why that fight was so difficult. I'm here today at Hillstead Museum in Farmington to hear about Theodate Pope Riddle and her suffrage story. I'm here with Melanie Anderson Bourbeau, Hillstead's curator. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's my pleasure. Full disclosure, I was interim director at Hillstead in the mid-1990s, around the time of the museum's 50th anniversary, and it's a very special place to me because it's really got it all. First and foremost, the French Impressionist paintings in the very places where the family hung them, the wonderful Mount Vernon-esque house built in 1901, 152 acres of gorgeous Connecticut landscape, and the Beatrix Farron Design Sunken Garden. And then there's its fascinating creator and last resident, architect Theodate Pope Riddle. Melanie, I didn't know anything about Theodate's suffrage story, and I want to hear more about that. But first, tell us a bit about Hillstead and about Theodate. Well, Elizabeth, as you said, the house was built in 1901. It is an English colonial revival style, and Theodate was passionately interested in the colonial revival movement. And Hillstead was her very first architectural project as well, which is really quite amazing when you consider that she was an untrained untested architect, and this 33,000-plus square foot building was her very first project. So she was given great leeway by her father to design a house and start looking at property acquisition while he was traveling abroad, collecting his artwork. And then Theodate really used her father's art collection to think about you know, how these rooms would be laid out, uh, which paintings would go in which rooms. The paintings became the color cues for how the rooms were decorated. And in addition, the tremendous amount of entertaining that her parents enjoyed also played into how this house was designed and, and what the eventual use would be. Not to mention, this was also a working farm. 
And so Hillstead's story is, first and foremost, the art collection, but it is also so many other fascinating threads that weave through the family story. And the women's story is only one, uh, progressive era, agriculture, gardening, uh, a little bit of politics. Um, It's very rich. That it is. So, but let's get to the suffrage story. Uh, Theodate was first against women's suffrage, right? That's right. Her father did not approve of it, was not in favor of it. It's interesting that in um, the, the Hartford Daily Current, Thursday, June 1st, 1911, there the headline is Connecticut Women Don't Want Ballot. And there's a, a little paragraph explaining, but then there is a listing of many, many communities throughout the state, from Hartford to New Canaan to Simsbury to Vernon to Greenwich, up to Norfolk, back to Colchester. And in Farmington, among several names, many of them Theodate's friends and neighbors, Theodate Pope, and then in parentheses, against the suffrage for the ensuing 10 years. And as best I can tell in the copies that we have of this newspaper, hers is the only name with that little note next to it. So her father was still alive at this point. What we know about Theodate is that she was very strong-willed. She had her own opinions, did not necessarily always go along with what her father believed and thought, but in deference to him, she wasn't going to do anything public that would disappoint him or make him upset. But she was only going to go that far for 10 years. And there is a reference in 1914 where, after her father's passing, Theodate and her mother are actually approached by Louisine Havemeyer to loan some of the artworks for a month-long exhibit at the Nodler Galleries in April to promote suffrage and to um, get people interested and in favor of that movement. And Theodate, interestingly, writes to her mother while she is in New York City, telling her mother, you know, in essence, that she is very much in favor of this and that Mrs. Havemeyer has contacted her about this potential loan, but ultimately leaves it up to her mother's decision. But it's very clear in the text of the letter that Theodate hopes her mother will say yes. A subsequent letter, though, indicates that her mother has decided not to loan the paintings, and it's because Theodate's father would not have approved. And Theodate completely agrees with her mother's point of view. She also states again that just because she is in favor of it, don't let that sway her mother's decision. She's all for her mother being, you know, making her own decision based on what they believe Alfred would have decided himself were he still alive. I have a feeling that as soon as her father passed away in late summer of 1913, she felt free to publicly switch camps. She knew Emmeline Pankhurst, the famed British suffrage activist who gave a speech in Hartford in 1909. What do we know about their relationship? Well, it's true she did know her. We don't know whether Theodate attended the rally that Mrs. Panker spoke at in Hartford in 1909. Um, Our correspondence dates from 1914-15, and it's it's friendly enough correspondence that they clearly had become acquainted and known each other on some degree prior to these letters. They're they're certainly not letters of introduction. Hmm. 
And so, for instance, in 1915, uh, while Theodate is in England, she receives a note from Mrs. Pankhurst inviting her to a meeting that is going to be held at the Polytechnic Club on Regent Street. And it's a very friendly, chatty letter. And kind of in the subtext of the letter, Mrs. Pankhurst is also hoping that Theodate is recovering sufficiently from the tragedy of having survived the, the torpedoing of the Lusitania. So you know, they, they've known, it's, it's clear that they have known each other. Um, and then the subsequent correspondence is with um, Mrs. Pankhurst's daughters, uh, particularly Christabel, and all of her work with the women's movement and empowering women and working toward women's rights, women and family and domestic issues. And the Pankhursts write to Theodate wanting and asking for Theodate's opinion as a working woman. So there, there clearly is, you know, a, a depth of friendship, a depth of knowing each other's thoughts and points of view. But again, we have no idea how they became acquainted specifically. So set the stage for us. It's uh, March of 1920. Well, the 19th Amendment passed in June of 1919, and 36 states are needed for it to become law. National eyes turned to Connecticut because it had such a very active suffrage movement, but Connecticut's legislature is not in session, and the suffragists are putting pressure on Governor Holcomb to call a special session to ratify the amendment so it will become law. And Theodate wrote a letter to the governor. Um, It was an open letter that was published in the Hartford Current in spring of 1920, and she writes... To His Excellency, the Governor of Connecticut, Dear Governor Holcomb, When you consider the terrible plight of the countries of the world today, are you and the anti-suffragists entirely satisfied that this man-controlled world is the last word in efficiency and wisdom? Have not the men made rather a mess of it? The starving women and children in Europe and Asia undoubtedly think so, as they have suffered most deplorably from it. Do you and the antis fear that if the women are given the vote by federal amendment, that they might, by its use, upset the present perfection of our own government? Could women make matters worse than they are now? Why not take a sporting chance that they might improve conditions? I suspect that the men who oppose women's suffrage do so because they fear the women will improve conditions. I would like to draw the attention to the anti-suffragists to this view of the question. I'm going to tell you a secret, dear Governor Holcomb, because you do not seem to be aware of it. One of the greatest final effects of the World War will be the enfranchisement of women the world over. And our own little state of Connecticut still hesitates, or has the appearance of hesitating, because you refuse to call a special session of the legislature. You cannot hold back this wagon of progress by holding the spokes of its rear wheels. With kind remembrances to you, I am very sincerely yours, Theodate Pope Brittle. I just I love this letter because it gives you a real sense of Theodate's force of personality. Well, another interesting quote in a letter um, also shows her force of personality, and this was a letter that she had written to her mother. She wrote in um, March of 1915, Today I go into Hartford to spend the entire afternoon at the state capitol as there is a hearing on the suffrage bill. I have no idea that our conservative state will pass it, but we must all do our duty. I told Mrs. Hepburn that I was sorry I could not make a speech, but that I would gladly throw a brick if it would help in showing my seriousness. So that is Catherine Hepburn, the actress's mother, also named Catherine, who was a 
powerhouse and leader in the Connecticut suffrage movement. So we know that Holcomb does not call a special session until after Tennessee becomes the 36th state to ratify the amendment in August 1920. He then calls the special session in September as anti-suffrage legislators are no doubt uh, getting worried about any re-election campaigns that fall, realizing that they may be in trouble with their new constituents. One other aspect of Theodate is that she, she knew the entire Roosevelt clan very well, and she was very much a supporter of the Progressive Party when Theodore Roosevelt was in office. And the fact that eventually, through her friendship and neighborly connections with Theodore's sister, Anna, who lived in Farmington, Theodate was selected to be the architect in charge of the reconstruction of the Theodore Roosevelt birthplace in Lower Manhattan. And then later on, when Franklin Roosevelt came into power, um, and things weren't going quite so well, let's say, at Avon Old Farm School, she made an offer to the government that they could use the school as a rehabilitative hospital for soldiers who had been blinded oh. during World War II. So the degree of Theodate's political involvement at least spanned both sides of political parties within the Roosevelt family as well. That is a thread that runs through Theodate's life, um, aside from her professional life as an architect, and the, the women's suffrage was only one aspect of how she looked at women's issues and was working toward empowering women throughout her life. Well, thank you very much for uh, telling us about uh, Theodate's suffrage journey. We hope our listeners vote in Connecticut's primaries on April 26th and again in November. Read more about voting rights in Connecticut in the current spring 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored. Purchase the issue online, find a newsstand outlet, including the museum shop here at Hillstead, and subscribe online at ctexplored.org. And for information on visiting Hillstead Museum, visit hillstead.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jamie Eves and the Wyndham Textile and History Museum and Melody Anderson Borbeau and Hillstead Museum. On the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, more stories from the new spring 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored on the timely topic of voting and civic engagement. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org.